So we're going to carry on looking in Haggai. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning, verses 10 to 19. Um, Bear with it. The first few verses are a bit like, what? What are we going to do with this? But it's good stuff in it. So um, I'm going to to pray. If you've got your Bibles, turn there. Haggai 2, chapter chapter 2, verse 10. Um, And then we'll dive straight on in. God, I want to thank you for your word. I thank you that your word brings life. God, we believe that and we position ourselves to receive that life this morning. So um, yeah, Holy Spirit, help us. Help us to hear what you're saying. And give us understanding. Um, and yeah, make us more the people in the church that you want us to be because of what you speak to us this morning. So God, we say we're, we're here, we're listening, um, and we're ready for you to speak. We ask that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Alrighty, let me read this to you. On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Ask the priests what the law says. If someone carries consecrated meat in the fold of their garment and that fold touches some bread or stew, some wine, olive oil or other food, does it become consecrated? The priest answered, no. Then Haggai said, if a person defiled by contact with a dead body touches one of those things, does it become defiled? Yes, the priest replied, it becomes defiled. Then Haggai said, so it is with this people and with this nation in my sight, declares the Lord. Whatever they do, whatever they offer there is defiled. Not the best news, but it gets better. Now, give careful thought to this from, the, from this day on. Consider how things were before one stone was laid on another in the Lord's temple. When anyone came to a heap of 20 measures, there were only 10. When anyone went to a vine vat to draw 50 measures, there were only 20. I struck all the work of your hands with blight, mildew, and hail, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. From this day on, from this 24th day of the nine month, give careful thought to the day when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. Give careful thought. Is there yet any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. But from this day on, I will bless you. Alrighty. Initially, on first reading, it's a bit of a a trickier passage. You think, what's God saying in that? What do we do with that? Um, And importantly, actually, what relevance does it have to us now? Because it's really important. Remember, we've talked about it a few times through this series. The whole deal with looking at prophetic books is understanding Haggai was a real man, you know, real prophet. God spoke through to a real group of people two and a half thousand years ago in a real situation. So it was definitely God speaking to them back then. And I want us to have a look at what was God saying to them. But also, you know, the prophetic books also speak forwards. They speak into our life and our context. So it's, you know, really important we think, all right, well, what is he also saying to us here and now? So let's start briefly with what was he saying to them? So remember, they've, they've come out of exile, they're back in Israel, they rebuilt an altar, um, and then basically they got distracted, they got discouraged, and everything stops until Haggai reappears and says, come on, it's time to build again. And we see that actually they, the spirit stirs up the hearts of the people, and, and they say yes, and they jump in and they start rebuilding. So what God is saying is he's using an example from the Jewish ritual law. Um, so in the Old Testament, you know, a good chunk of the, the Old Testament is the specific laws and requirements that God spoke to his people. Now, some of that was religious or ritual law. So what does worship look like? What does going to the temple look like? Some of it was sort of civic law in terms of kind of relationships and crime and finances and farming and all sorts of other things. Um, and a lot of it was ethics as well. Actually, how do we live? So it's really broad, all-encompassing framework, which essentially was God saying to Israel, you are my people, 
And that is not just a concept, that's got to look like something. And the law was his gift to them saying, listen, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to be my people. So what Haggai is speaking about is a part of that ritual law, which was about things being clean or unclean. So the words he uses are being consecrated or defiled. And this idea of kind of being clean or unclean was a really big deal. It was really important because if you were unclean, um, if you were ritually unclean, you, you couldn't come into the temple. So actually, you were, you were held back. You were restricted from worship at the temple. Like it, it, was, it was a big deal. So the priests had to go through an enormous amount of preparation in order to, to come into the, the Holy of Holies, the very central place. Um, but actually, so this idea of being clean or unclean was, was really important. It was a really big deal. Now, God is using this as an example. He wasn't specifically talking to Israel in that context about their ritual purity. He was using it as an analogy. So he said to the priest, listen, let me talk to you. You know what the law says, right? So and it's, can holiness be transferred? No. Um, but can uncleanness, if you touch someone who's touched a dead body, are you then unclean? Yes, you are. So he's using that as an example to make this point, okay? That actually, their lack of priorities in making the temple and finishing the temple actually was affecting everything else. So, and, you know, makes a strong statement. Everything in the end of um, verse 14, whatever they do, whatever they offer, is defiled. That's a strong statement. He's like actually saying, listen, because your priorities and your devotion and your obedience to me is out of alignment, everything else is affected. So in the same way that under the old covenant law, and I know this is different for us, but under the old covenant, if you touched a dead body, you were unclean. And then if I touched you, then I was unclean. So it was, a, it was a big deal. And that meant, you know what? You couldn't come into the temple to worship. But in the same way, he's using that as an example to say, because, because there's like the presence of this corpse, if you like, this, this temple that is not rebuilt, the presence of this is actually messing up everything else. That's what he's saying to them. And he, and he uses examples. He listen, three times he says, give careful thought. So three times he's saying, think about this. So he refers back to... He says, before one stone was laid on another. So before they started rebuilding, he's like, just remember what it was like. You know, you went to draw some wine. There was less than half than what you thought there'd be. You went to a pile of measured of, of, of fruit or food, and there was like, you know, 50% of what you thought. Everything was, everything was failing. Nothing was prospering. And God makes the point, listen, I struck the work of your hands, but still you didn't return to me. He's like, listen, that was what life was looking like when you were resisting me and you didn't have that priority of connection with God, worship and obedience to him. When that wasn't in place, stuff was not going well. But then he says, but give careful thought from the day you laid that foundation. And essentially then he makes this, this declaration about their future is this is going to look different. And so he closes this passage with saying, from this day on, I will bless you. And it's because of their obedience in rebuilding the temple. So that, that's what God was saying to them. He uses an example from the law, but he's actually making a point about where they were at as a community and a culture. Make sense? Okay, two people make sense. It's good. You, you can speak to me. It's fine. So what is he saying to us now? Okay. Um, honestly, I think it, it's, a rep, it's a repetition of, of actually what is quite a simple message through Haggai, which is this. Actually, you've got to get first things first. We've got to keep the main thing, the main thing, and that actually my priorities matter. Actually, what I'm building into my life is important. So worship, devotion, and obedience to God matters. 
And I'm going to walk in the most prosperous, the most fulfilling, the most fruitful life if that connection and commitment to the Lord is lined up. That's the simple message. And it kind of comes at it from lots of different ways. But, but that's the message. Rebuild the temple. Make worship a connection with God a priority. And as a culture and as a community, you're going to flourish. It's the same message to us. Have your priorities straight. And walking, you know, that's where our life flourishes. Things just, just go way better when I'm with Jesus. Things go way better when I do what Jesus says. Like, that's the message. And actually, intentionally ignoring what he's saying and walking in disobedience outside of what he says, it has consequences. You know, actually, you know, we reap what we sow. That's, that's true for you and I today as it was two and a half thousand years ago. Like, that's, that's still true. I can choose to position myself for blessing and fruitfulness, or I can choose to position myself outside of that. It's, it's a pretty simple message. But the analogy used is the point that kind of potentially tri- trips us up. I don't know about you, but any time we kind of look at the, the really detailed, sort of specific nature of some of the Old Testament law, it just feels so alien. Maybe it's just me. But I'm just like, like what, what do I do with that? Like, what are you saying to me in that? I believe all of the Bible is God's word to me. Um, but but what, so what does that mean? Because the, the thing we have to understand is that, listen, it was God's gift and it was his specific framework for the people of Israel in those times. That was the old covenant. That means the old relationship, connection, contract. That was the way they did life and worship with God. We have to understand since Jesus, we are now in a new covenant. So things have changed. So while all of the Old Testament, all of the old covenant law is still God's word to us. It's not his specific command to us. Does that make sense? It's his word for us, but it's not necessarily his specific command to us in terms of what's required of us. Does that make sense? So much has changed. So that, you know, concept of the, you know, ritual impurity and, you know, actually if you touch a dip, like the unclean, like that's, we're not, like we're not in that era anymore. Like that actually isn't for us. So we need to not trip up over that. We need to recognize, do you know what? A lot of it has changed. Um, but what I want to highlight this morning is while, while an awful lot has changed, it's important to be really clear and hold on to the fact that an awful lot hasn't changed. And we need to make sure we hold on to the stuff that hasn't changed. We are in a new covenant, but with an unchanging God. And that's what we kind of have to work out. That's, that's sometimes the trick you need to working out, all right, I am a new covenant believer, but there's still this Old Testament full of truth, and what does that actually mean for me? So when, whenever I look at the Old Testament, you never kind of the, even looking at the story of Israel and the kind of the law and the requirements that God laid out there, it, honestly, it reminds me of three things. And these three things have not changed under the new covenant. First is this, God is absolutely holy, completely. He was then, he is now, he always will be. That's the first thing. Second thing is the reality of sin. Like sin is a big deal and it matters. And we're, you know, I'm concerned sometimes by the sort of leaning in the church that actually we're in the new covenant, it's all grace and sin's no big deal. Sin's just as big a deal now as it was back then. That's, and the third thing is actually God's requirement on his people for obedience to walk in his ways is, again, just the same. Some of the specifics of what that looks like is different, but actually his requirement to walk in obedience is just the same. Much has changed. Those three things haven't. 
God is absolutely holy, sin is a big deal, and obedience really matters. Those three things really matter. We see a high value for those things in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. So a really high value for for purity, which is where all this kind of clean and unclean laws came from. You know, there's huge numbers of foods they weren't allowed to eat. There were certain things they had to do. There were certain health conditions that kept... Like, it was, very, it was a really big deal. But it demonstrates a high value for purity and cleanness because of the absolute holiness of God. Like, that's what that tells us. Actually, so to be able to come into the presence of almighty, eternal, holy God... Of course we can't just swan in any which way. Like that, that makes no sense. And sin, you know, impurity, disobedience, sin actually makes it impossible for any of us to come into the presence of God. Not because God just doesn't like sin, but because he is completely and totally holy. So sin just can't be in his presence. That's what, when you read the Old Testament, I want to encourage you, that have it with eyes open. Say, God, what are you telling me? What is it showing us about the nature of God? And it's that he's absolutely holy, so cannot tolerate sin. So we can't come into the presence of God with sin. Like, it's a simple point. It was the same back then, same now. Now, in the old covenant, God had made provision for the people to be forgiven, to be made clean for atonement. So basically, the, the penalty for their sin was paid, and they had a particular day and a festival. And there was God made a way for them for forgiveness, for them to be able to then reconnect, okay? It's the same for you and I, but the thing now is that the way God has made provision for our forgiveness is different. Actually, what happened under the old covenant was just a picture, was just a shadow of actually what happened with the coming of Jesus. So if you're in your seat as a believer, as a follower of Jesus, you need to be absolutely sure on this. You have been forgiven, washed clean, made righteous, and that, I mean, righteous basically means you are in right standing with God, right relationship with God, purely and simply because of the work of Jesus on the cross, which completely paid for your sins, utterly washes you clean, and entirely makes you new. There is nothing you need to add to the work of the cross, and there's nothing that you can do that actually can take away from it. It's enough. It's completely enough. So for us to be made righteous... Because, you know, God minds about righteousness. He is a righteous God, so it matters. So we see this high value for purity, for holiness, for righteousness, just the same for you and I today. But as well, there's a still a just as high a value for obedience. Having been made righteous, it's just as important for us to live in righteousness. Like, that's no different. And all of this, like all of this always highlights for me and and reminds me again, it brings me back again to the cross of Jesus. Actually, the extreme grace of God at the cross in Jesus to fully pay the full penalty, not just reduced it, paid the whole thing, cleared your whole debt and made you clean. And it's really important we understand, listen, it's both those things. It says in 1 John that God is faithful. If we confess our sins, it talks about him forgiving all of our sins and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. Those are two different things, both purchase of the cross. And I'm concerned sometimes that we as Christians, we, we accept the first and we forget the second. So I'm a forgiven sinner. I am tolerated in my mess. And God loves me just as I am, but actually I'm still messy. That's just not what the Bible says. Like, like that actually isn't what the gospel says. It says that you were washed clean and made new because of what Jesus did. It's an outrageous act of grace. 
And grace means, listen, it's a gift. There's nothing I've done to deserve it. There's nothing I could possibly do to earn it, and neither do I have to. It's just a gift that I get to receive. But this is the important thing, is that actually, grace didn't stop at the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Actually, grace made me righteous, but grace empowers me to live righteous as well. Let me read you this from Titus 2, 11 and 12. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. That's Jesus. When Jesus appeared, actually, his life, death, his resurrection, that was the God's grace that offered salvation to anyone who believed, no matter who they are, where they've been, what they've done. Grace appeared to offer salvation to everyone. But then it goes on in verse 12. But grace teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. Grace offers us salvation to make us righteous, but grace empowers us, teaches us to say no so that actually we walk in righteousness. Both those things are a really big deal and they really matter. Grace makes me clean, but grace empowers me to walk a different way now. We have to hold on to that. You know, it's in the same way that for Israel, you know, for them, the rebuilding of the temple wasn't a kind of tick box have that, you know, box that one off, get the temple rebuilt, and then just crack on with the rest of your lives. It was something historical to kind of tick a box in the past that then was completely disconnected and made no difference in everyday life. Like, that's not it. If you read on in Ezra, so Ezra is the historical book in the Bible that basically tells the story of what was going on when Haggai was, um, was speaking. When Haggai was speaking to Israel, the story of what was happening is in Ezra. So it's a good book to read to kind of see where this fits. And in Ezra chapter 6, we see that the temple is rebuilt and it's dedicated and they kind of celebrate and it, they mark it. But the book doesn't end there. And, and it's interesting to me, in Ezra chapter 7, the whole chapter is about Ezra as a teacher of the law, basically stepping up and into his calling. And actually, he gets a royal decree from Darius saying, you need to go and teach the people all the laws and the statutes of God. So the temple is rebuilt great, first things first, but that's not the end of the story. Actually, he needed to teach them, listen, this is now what this needs to look like. It has to have an out. It has to have an effect. And then when you read on in Ezra chapter 9, the people um, basically are challenged and they're con- kind of convicted of their sin. Of Actually, they've been intermarrying and they've been marrying pagan people and, and they kind of, there's this turning and coming back to God because they recognize it wasn't good enough just to pay, you know, tick box, rebuild a temple, you know, lip service. It's like, actually, this has to have an effect. And actually, how we're doing life and family and marriage, that doesn't line up. So we need to address that. So Ezra's whole ministry wasn't just kind of blazing a trail for let's get the temple rebuilt. His, his ministry was, I want to teach you so that culture and community is transformed and you look like the people of God that you are. Building a temple wasn't enough. It's the same for us, you know, actually having been made righteous. If you are a Christian, you know, to be able to look back to the day when you say, this is the day when I accepted what Jesus did for me and I was forgiven and I was washed clean and I was made new. It's not a tick box event in the past. It changes everything. But the whole of the way you do life must look different as a result. We cannot separate out those two things. It's, so that's the, it's the same for us today as it was for Israel back then. Listen, connection with God is restored. But there's absolutely still work for you and I to do. And we have a part to play in that. I want to jump into the New Testament. Ephesians 4, 20 to 24 says this. 
That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So what Paul is saying is, look, there is some stuff for you to do. So the language he's using, you know, put off the old self, put on the new self. He's saying, listen, you have some choices, some decisions to make in order to line up with who you are now. I love it the way it finishes in verse 24. The new self, so having been made righteous with God, being a new creation, we were created to be like God. It's a big statement in true righteousness and holiness. Like it matters. It has to affect how we live. And so there is, there's some stuff that we're going to have to do. There are some choices we're going to have to make. But the important thing I want you to make sure you hear is that grace empowers us to make those choices. Actually, it's the grace of God that empowers me to put off stuff that belongs to my old self. It's his grace that empowers me to put on the new stuff that I'm created to be righteous and holy. And so I need to live in a way and I need to think right in the middle of the verse 22, put off your old self, put on the new self. Right in the middle of that verse 23, it says, be made new in the attitude of your minds. Listen, how you think is so critical in how you live. So we have to change the way we're thinking. And you know, it's important that the way I think is, you know what? God's standard matters. Obedience really matters. I need to agree with that and I need to make decisions So it looks like something, because that's what we were created for. The new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Listen, that's the call right the way through the New Testament. The New Testament is full of um, teaching on actually what life looks like, on ethical teaching, on on marriage and relationships and, and like just everything. So to say that actually under the new system it's all grace and there's no boundaries and we do it, we're like, that's garbage. Like that's just such a twisting of the gospel. That's not it. But the, but the call always, the charge always in the New Testament is not, here's all this stuff to do. Clean yourself up, measure up, do the right thing to make yourself acceptable to God. Like That's not it. We need to be super careful we don't get deceived that it is. So yes, there's a standard. Yes, there's absolutely a requirement. And honestly, it's the same in the New Testament as it was in the Old Testament. It says in both parts of the Bible, God says, be holy because I am holy. He says it to you and I today and he said it to them 3,000 years ago. That's the standard. Be holy as he is holy. That's a high standard. But the New Testament teaching is always, look at what Jesus did. That's why I love the song we started with. You know, I remind myself of what he's done, that I am forgiven, that I am washed clean, that I am made new entirely through the work of Jesus. He's done it all. But always the New Testament writers are saying, listen, look at what Jesus has done. Look at who you are now. Now live in a way that reflects that. And I'm alarmed and frustrated at any sort of leaning in the church that champions what Jesus has done and champions who we are without any sort of requirement of, listen, folks, this has got to look like something. That's not good enough, and that isn't grace. And I want us to be different as a church. So to have the view that sin is irrelevant under the new covenant is nonsense. We must understand that the penalty and the power of sin is entirely broken by Jesus, but I need to choose to walk in that way. And I can't do that for you, and you can't do that for me. I can encourage you, you can encourage me, but bottom line, that is my responsibility. So it's all been done as a free gift. I want you to make sure it's that way around. 
that actually where we're positioned now is completely different. Let me read you this from um, Colossians 1. It talks about this. This includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Listen, we can't dumb down the fact that sin matters. Like, sin's a big deal. And actually, when we were living in sin, in disobedience from God, we were separated from him. Actually, we were his enemies because of sin. It's a big deal. Yet now, in verse 22, he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in his physical body. And as a result, he has brought you into his own presence. And you are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. That is an insane passage of the Bible. I could give you a book of my faults. Phil could probably give you two books. Like, I'm, I'm so aware. I am not with that. But, it's, but God says, yeah, but when I look at you, Sarah, I look through Jesus, and I see you as holy and blameless without a single fault. That's the gospel. That's incredible. But having received that as a free gift, we have a responsibility to live in that. Having been made righteous, we have absolutely lot to get on with living in a way that is righteous. I'm made righteous in order to live righteous. It matters. So that, listen, that is the individual call that we can't escape. Actually, my connection with God is restored through Jesus, but my lifestyle really matters and needs to reflect who I am now in Jesus. So there's that individual call. But this whole series has been, actually, is reminding ourselves, that actually, there's a really big picture God's got a really big plan, and the church is absolutely the way that he's going to work that out. So you remember, Haggai was a real guy speaking to a real people, building a real physical temple, right? But also, this temple is a prophetic picture pointing forwards to the church. So back then, under the old covenant, the presence of God was in the Ark of the Covenant, was in a box, in a temple. Now, It says in the New Testament, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. So we carry the presence of God wherever we go. That's amazing. But we have to understand, I talked about last week, is listen, there is an individual and a corporate way we have to understand and outwork that. So what does this mean? Well, this stuff we've been talking about this morning, I've been made righteous, but I need to live righteous. What does that mean for us as the church in the context of the great rebuilding in terms of what God's doing on the earth? So I'll remind you, God's master plan, we read in Ephesians 1, is that everything in existence, in heaven or on earth, would find its perfection and fulfillment in Jesus, right? Keep our eyes on that's the master plan, okay? And that gets worked out through the church. And the promise we looked at last week in Haggai, there's this prophetic declaration that the, the glory of the latter house will be greater than that of the former. And that is a picture of you and I as the church, And we are that latter house, that second house that God said is going to be more glorious than the former. And so it gets worked out through the church. But I want to look at, there are three New Testament statements and declarations that God makes about his church, two of which we've looked at already, but the third one really ties in this morning. And we have to understand they all matter. So let me remind you of them. Ephesians 3.10, Sam mentioned this when he spoke, that God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. It's super easy to read that verse and to miss the bit where it says through the church. God's intent was that the manifold wisdom of God would be made known. Yes, it was. But read it properly. His intent was through the church. No other way, through the church, 
the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the whole of creation. You know, I think the manifold wisdom is not just wise thoughts and considered teaching. Like God's wisdom, it, like, is so broad, it's so expressive, it's so creative. And actually, he's saying, listen, the full breadth of the creativity, the wisdom, the insight, the compassion, the goodness, the power of God, that is supposed to be made known to the world through the church. Listen, it is, this verse is not saying that that happens through church meetings and programs. Like, that is not it, sounds plea. Like, it's not. I love the gathered church. Like, I am, I'm, I'm all in, 100% all in. But listen, this here on a Sunday morning is not where the manifold wisdom of God is expressed to Manchester. It's when you show up on a hospital ward being the most creative, caring, insightful nurse that people are like, how do you get to do that? I didn't learn that in nursing school. That's the wisdom of God being expressed. I've been chatting with Mark and Sarah, who just come back from Barcelona and, and being in the cathedral there, and they said it was just stunning reflection. They're like, I encounter God in just amazing ways. That is the wisdom of God on the earth through architecture. I believe that. Those of you who are mums and dads, actually the way that you parent your kids, those of you in business, the way you create resource, that is the wisdom of God demonstrated to the earth. So we've got to get out of our thinking that the wisdom of God being displayed through the church is in a meeting which is great because that takes the pressure off our Sunday mornings, right? We are gathered here to be sent to go and demonstrate the wisdom of God wherever you show up. That's the plan. I could talk about that for a long time, but I'll move on. The second statement we looked at is that the fullness of Jesus lives in the church corporately. Ephesians 1, 22, 23. God has placed everything under the power of Christ and has set him up as the head of everything for the church. This verse is wrecking my head right now. For the church is his body, and in that body lives fully the one who fills the whole wide universe. That's stunning. That's why the glory of the latter house is greater, because Jesus, who created everything, who holds everything together, who rules and reigns over everything, he lives fully in his body, which is the church. That's stunning. And I said it last week, listen, whether we see it, feel it, recognize it right now is not the issue. It is what God has said, and I believe it. But there's a third really important declaration that um, we read about, and this is in Ephesians 5, when Paul is speaking into the context of marriage, um, but he says some really important things about the church. Let me read it from verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Blessings on you for that, guys. There's a high standard of love, but that's another message. Love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her, there it is again, you're clean, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That is God's prophetic declaration and purpose over the church, that we would be radiant, without spot, without wrinkle, without blemish. We would be holy and blameless. And I know we're not there yet, but I'm absolutely determined that's where we're going to get to. That is what God's spoken over his church. That's the church that he's building. So we need to, we need to remember, okay, God has, has promised greater glory for the church. He, is, he has determined that his wisdom in all its creativity in different ways is going to be expressed through the church. He has said he's going to live fully in the church. But what kind of a church is it? Listen, it is one that's marked by purity and holiness that has been cleansed and actually walks holy and blameless. 
It's a corporate, it's a corporate word, not just an individual word. Actually, that we're to be a radiant church. That's the kind of church that Jesus has given himself up for. That's the church he paid for. And you and I get the privilege of making sure he gets what he paid for. That's good news, but that's a high challenge. And listen, I'm convinced there is an, there's an inextricable link between those three declarations, that the fullness of Jesus living in his body, that the, you know, the vast extent of God's wisdom being demonstrated through the church is tied to the fact that his church must be holy and blameless without spot or wrinkle. Those things are not separate statements. Those things matter. And if you and I are walking in unrighteousness, if we are not obedient, if we are, you know, having been made righteous, we're being entitled and kind of, it's all grace and it doesn't matter. Listen, honestly, we're diminishing the radiance of the church that God's purposed. And I don't want that to sound heavy, but it matters. It is important. Actually, if we are tolerating our wrinkles and spots or even celebrating them, honestly, guys, we're missing it. That's not enough. Those truths, those prophetic declarations over the church, what God has purposed and promised, are very much related to one another. But they are very much related to you and I. Because the bottom line is this. Listen, I have only got responsibility and influence over my spots and my wrinkles. I can do nothing about yours. You can do nothing about mine. Like, actually, that is on me. So actually, you know, the church is made up of living stones. So God, where am I not fully living in holiness? Where am I maybe tolerating some spots or wrinkles? And I'm putting it down to my personality or life stage or pressure. Actually, I want to just kindly say, it's not good enough. There's a higher standard. It's a high calling over us, guys. Be holy because I am holy. But his grace empowers us to live in that way. I know that feels unattainable. I know that feels impossible. But it's no more impossible than me as a sinner, you know, prideful and insecure, for me to be restored and be accepted as a daughter of God, that is the greatest miracle of all time. So I know he can manage my other stuff. Which is why last week I was saying, listen, let's acknowledge our process. Acknowledge we have stuff that we're working on. That doesn't in any way diminish the power of the promise of God. You're definitely not that big a deal that your stuff can divert what God's planned and purposed. Sorry, you're not. But listen, I absolutely... I absolutely believe in the glory of the latter house. I am absolutely convinced these are the best days of the church and the future is only going to get better. I'm convinced of that. But that isn't about meetings and programs. It's about you and I recognizing who we are, believing what Jesus has done for us, and absolutely committing ourselves to live obediently. You know, constantly praising God that we've been made righteous, but absolutely committing and encouraging one another to live in righteousness. It's not an event in your past. It's to mark the whole way that we live our lives. But I believe, honestly, I'm convinced that the glory of the latter house is absolutely related to the church becoming the pure and spotless bride. I don't think we can separate out those two things. And one day Jesus will have a church without blemish that is holy, that is blameless. Like, I believe that completely, but I am going to live intentionally to see that as a reality in my life, in my church, in this city, in my day. Guys, why not? Actually, why not? But I need to recognize, listen, I absolutely have a part to play. It is all grace. It is grace that gives me a fresh start, but it is grace that empowers me to walk in that way, in faithful, dedicated obedience. That is the call. That is the adventure. And that is what's going to see culture and community shift around us. So would you stand? I want us to pray for one another.